Welcome to Art Openings, the podcast where there are no gatekeepers, no stupid questions, and art for all. Hosted by Courtney Jordan and Samantha Sanders and sponsored by Artist Network. Today we're talking self-care. Why? Because everyone is talking about it. In fact, you might be kind of sick of hearing about it, but we think we've got some ideas today that you'll want to hear, like ways to fight creative burnout and how to be a suffering artist, if that's what you're into or not. Um, But we want to talk about what self-care actually is. So the way I kind of think of self-care, and this is a pretty limited definition, but I kind of think of it as the way you get through the day. So it's the little things you do, like a nap or letting yourself buy Kleenex instead of the scratchy off-brand tissues, or it's the big things like massages or therapy or vacations. Um, But what we're mainly concerned about today are all the nooks and crannies where your self-care routine intersects with your art, which is also self-care, which is trippy. Oh, and by the way, this is for entertainment and conversational purposes only. Do not come to Courtney or me for professional advice. Go to an expert. (laughs) Um, When we started bouncing this topic back and forth, I mostly gave it yes because I was determined to have Sam say the phrase forest bathing on air, which she will hopefully numerous times before we're done. (laughs) Um, But why self-care sticks for me is because of the ways it intersects with two things, the nature of creativity And that it disrupts a lot of long-held historic stereotypes we have about artists, makers, creatives. Um, So we're going to look into what makes us creatives and those starving artist stereotypes, as well as some of the ways we might be unconsciously sabotaging ourselves in our work. Um, We'll get into some help figuring out all of this with our guest, Suzanne Cologne, um, who we have a major brain crush on, I think it's safe to say. Um, she is an artist, an author, and a yogi who has written a book called Yoga Mind um, that's all about learning to live a more mindful life. I know, right? If <laughs> I feel better just saying it. <laughs> it is very pleasant to be in Suzanne's company. Definitely. Um, okay, so the first thing that <clears throat> I wanted to get into was the nature of the creative mind. So I looked into some, you know, did some research and I found a book called The Creating Brain, The Neuroscience of Genius by Nancy C. Andreasen. Um, And I wanted to quote it because I think it helps couch what we think of as a creative, creative person and sort of the the pros and the cons, the, you know, the perks as well as the burdens of, of living a creative life. So she says, many personality characteristics of creative people make them more vulnerable including openness to new experiences, a tolerance for ambiguity, and an approach to life and the world that is relatively free of preconceptions. This flexibility permits them to perceive things in a fresh and novel way, which is an important basis for creativity. But it also means that their inner worlds are complex, ambiguous, and filled with shades of gray rather than black and white. It's a world filled with many questions, and few easy answers. While less creative people can quickly respond to situations based on what they've been told by people in authority, the creative person lives a more fluid and nebulous life. He or she may have to confront criticism or rejection for being too questioning, too unconventional. And then these traits can lead to things like, you know, depression and social alienation. So for me, I took away from from the creating brain was that there are really, you know, two sides to creativity. The first seems great, right? You can pursue this artful life, um, a, a living with no limits and, and making with no limits. But on the other side, there's this potential for, you know, a dark turn. Um, 
so then we can get into the stereotype of the artist. And um, Sam, when uh, we were going back and forth about like how I was going to sort of talk about this, it really comes down to a bunch of sad boys. Sad boys. <laughs> That's what I think of um, when we're talking about the stereotype of an artist. You know, um, Michelangelo, Van Gogh, Jackson Pollock, all these guys throughout history they have a bunch of characteristics in common or there are several characteristics or profiles of the artist that sort of make them a sad dude. Um, isolated, reclusive, uh, a, an artist making alone in their studio. Uh, there's an artist that I love, Lee Bontecu. I mean, she's famous, amazing, and yet she's lived in relative obscurity for, for I think, decades. Um, Emily Dickinson was called queen recluse by those she corresponded um, by letter with you know, during her lifetime. Um, another characteristic would be sort of tortured, racked with anxiety, overwhelmed with self-loathing, or the opposite in a way, sort of bereft of inspiration, abandoned by the creative muse. You know, Francis Bacon, the, on the first part of that, was sort of known for these tortured self-portraits when he was sort of pulling the real dark, ugly, um, parts out of him, um, then there are some artists who just gave it up, right? Marcel Duchamp, um, Agnes Martin, both quit the art world, made work in secret for, you know, towards the end of their lives. Um, another one is the sort of the self-destructive artist. Drug, smoking, drinking, whatever you want to, you know, say. Modigliani is famous for doing anything for a drink, giving out his <laughs> art in the middle of the street for art supplies, for a smoke, for um, a drink in the, in the pub. Um, Poor and starving, Rembrandt, right? Ended mm -hmm. that way. Um, and then sort of an ultimate demise. And you have Van Gogh, Diane Arbus, Mark Rothko. You know, a lot of these artists, whether they had mental disorders that led to suicide or, you know, addictive behaviors that resulted in, you know, an untimely death. Not a, not a, like I said, <laughs> by the end of this, I was like, oh, why would you, why would you take this up as your, as your mantle? So, so basically my question is, what's up with that? <laughs> Art itself is, in my mind, linked to calmness, to building empathy, to inducing creativity, like a domino effect. Like the mm -hmm. more creative you are, the more creative you will be. And, and healing, right? I mean, art therapy is a, a definitely almost a 21st century thing that we call it that. But I think throughout history, it's, it's done that work. It's, it's provided us ways to heal um, and observe more about ourselves and our world around us in a really positive way. So why then are these reputations or characteristics so negative that like creativity is a burden? So, you know, my first question for you and I to sort of spitball is like, are these accurate? I mean, do, do you think so? Oh, boy. So historically, no doubt there has to be some accuracy to it right. um, because these stories have been discussed over and over um, throughout the years. I do think it's interesting that so many of them are sad boys. And one of the things <laughs> that I kind of wrote down when you were talking was, did, is this a, a condition of the male artist or right. do female artists... Um, go through it too, but historically they've just largely been ignored. Um, right. And that is that is definitely a good point, especially about like mm -hmm. Western art history, right? Oh, for sure. That is a particular codified, mm -hmm. you know, body and, pe you know, persons. And I also think it's interesting that you mentioned art therapy because I think like I imagine someone who's um, going through something and they use art therapy as a, 
a means of feeling better about themselves. So what actually goes on for the person who's painting a canvas who's in art therapy versus an artist who's painting a canvas at the same time? Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with how the work is received. So some of the trouble that I think artists sometimes can get into is this fixation on how their work will be received, which, of course, if it's your livelihood, is a huge part of your right. concern. You're going to worry about that. Um, and going back to the male-female dynamic, too, I always remember, do you know that Humans of New York Facebook page? Right. There's this one woman who, this is something I always think about, there's this woman whose father had been a novelist, and she was also a novelist, and she had a little bit more success than her father. And she said that he was always plagued by that. And she called it being plagued by this notion of greatness. And she was kind of tired yeah. of hear hearing about it. She was like, what is it with men? Why are they always <laughs> plagued by this feeling right, of, right. you know, am I great enough? Like the way their work is perceived. Ew. And she personally <laughs> didn't feel like that was a problem for her. Right. Um, and that was something that I identified with. Um, well, it's expectations. But it's not that simple uh, along gender lines. It's definitely not that simple. No, no. But I think you're right. I mean, is it a matter of expectations? Were... Sometimes you right when you apply your own pressure to a situation, making something is becomes then fraught with tension, right? Like mm -hmm. this has to be a masterpiece because I'm then a sometimes master. the tension is good. Right. No, right. And sometimes it provokes you to be your best self. And mm -hmm. I think that's then all a matter of degree and line. And again, like like you said in, you know, before sort of warning people like we're just talking about this from our own <laughs> personal points of view. Like me, not to be, you know, cocky, but I'm like pretty well in line because I know my expectations about myself and like I'm also human like mm -hmm. greatness yeah no court that's like mm -hmm. you know that's like a pedestal talk I don't mm -hmm. think that's real life so I think you have to manage your expectations of yourself and that has to come with like being kind to yourself you know oh, like definitely. You, you can't I don't know always be the one that's taking it down but but, I mean, I do wonder, is creativity a source of stress? Mm -hmm. Like, Well, I think society also kind of needs to acknowledge the role it plays because I feel like there's always been this romanticism of the artist. And we kind of play into that a little bit. We sort of like our artists just a little bit tortured because somehow it feels more authentic. But is it really? I don't know. It's hard to say. For you, it's not. Well, and I, yeah, I think, though, is that because we're more comfortable with making creative people the other so that we don't acknowledge Ooh. that we too, I think, have a part to, to play in that. Like, oh, I'm not creative or I'm not skilled or whatever it is. So then you sort of back away from what tends to be a really like self-discovering moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you're creating and making that, you know, some people aren't comfortable so with that. So something I always think about is when there's an attitude that's present, what what's the value in believing that attitude? So what's the value in someone who thinks of themselves as a non-artist kind of conceptualizing the artist as other? Right. No, t totally. I think that's really... I actually didn't, you know, like, <laughs> I never thought about it quite that way. Well, but that's, <laughs> I feel like I'm paraphrasing what you just said, but it's kind of like if people feel threatened by that, uh, the force of creativity in the world, if they feel stifled by their own life, um, it may feel more comfortable for the creative person to be an other than to be a capacity that they could just have in themselves. Right. Sometimes that capacity is threatening. Like creatives are X-Men, like yeah. they're mutants. Yeah. You have to keep them at Total. arm's length. Yeah. Well, I mean, then I think though, but but I do think despite this, like like I said, when starting this, I was like, man, that's a downer. But I still think like the creative spark, it is our most valuable resource as human mm -hmm. beings. Like I think 
through that, we are capable of doing things that are amazing. Mm -hmm. So when we sort of take this to the next step and we talk about how to self-care intersect with with the creative person, Mm -hmm. then I think we're going to be really onto the meat of it because then we're going to say, you're creative. And even if you don't think you are, you are. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. here's what to do when, you know, I don't know, when things are, when you're sort of hitting a wall or can't seem to figure it out or looking for answers and not sure why you can't, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Get out of the first gear, let's Mm -hmm. say. Okay, so tell us what you think. If you follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Artist Network, let us know some of the ways that you um, personally bring self-care into your routine and how you feel like it intersects with your own art. We will be right back with Suzanne Cologne right after this break. Artist Network is proud to present its first international art retreat this spring in Tuscany. Limited to just 20 attendees, this art pilgrimage takes place September 16th through the 21st at Tenuta de Spinocchia, an 1,100-acre working farm and artist retreat nestled in the hills outside Florence. Oil painting instructor Melanie Vogt and watercolor instructor Thomas Schaller will guide you through a series of daily workshops designed to deepen your skill set and heighten your awareness, all amid the beauty of Spinocchia. Find out more and register at artistnetwork.com under the events tab. Suzanne is the author of Yoga Mind, Journey Beyond the Physical, from North Star Way and Scribner, among other books. And she's also a former editor of O, the Oprah Magazine. Her writing has been featured in the Oprah Magazine and Good Housekeeping, along with Jane, Latina, Details, Harper's Bazaar, and Rolling Stone. And Oprah.com, the Huffington Post, and other websites. She's appeared on the Today Show, Early Show, NPR, and now she's here with us. <laughs> Welcome, Suzanne. Suzanne, thank you for being here. Thank you for yes. having me. Um, so you were listening to us ramble on. Um, what's your take on where self-care and the life of the artist kind of intersect? It's, it's a really interesting intersection because I think that there's this crazy sliding scale of like, the proportion of suffering is equal to your proportion of artistic merit, uh-huh. which is crazy. Totally. I don't know where that came from, but there is everybody can call up the stereotype of like, oh, he suffers so much for his art. It's mm-hmm. amazing. And it's like, that, why, why is that a good thing? <laughs> who, who decided that was a good thing? Mm-hmm. But, you know, there it is. So I think... In that, self-care got thrown out the window. And it's almost like, well, if you're taking care of yourself as an artist, aren't you kind of a pansy? Aren't you kind Mm -hmm. of not that serious? Aren't you? Sellout. Yeah, you're a sellout. You're not taking your art seriously because you're taking care of yourself. And Mm -hmm. I think this really needs to be kind of squashed. And maybe we can squash it today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's squash it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to claw that thing down off the... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you define self-care? Um, I think there could be a lot of definitions that people would want to take here, but one of them is not becoming so obsessed that you drain the living daylights out of the thing that you're doing. The thing that you're doing, allegedly because you're passionate about it and you love it dearly, why do you want to strangle that thing to death? <laughs> um Yeah. So (laughs) in that sense, self-care could just be not becoming uh, that obsessive person who strangles the daylights out of the thing that you love, Mm -hmm. not buying into that stereotype of I have to suffer in order to make good art. 
it's not true. Um, so that's, I think, the first step towards self-care. It's kind of very similar in yoga. There are people who have this thinking when they come to yoga class, if it doesn't hurt, I haven't done it correctly. It's like, no. <laughs> we have a saying at Integral Yoga that goes, no pain, no pain. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting like that because if you're in pain and you get injured, right. you can't actually do the yoga. It's so funny. When you think about it, it makes perfect sense. But there are people who approach yoga like it's a competitive sport, you know, like, you know, football or something like that. And then there are people who are really more, I think I'll see where I am today. That doesn't feel right. I'm not going to do it. Or I'll modify. These are the people who end up doing yoga for 50, 60, 70 years, look amazing, and have that kind of serene countenance that you think... Well, I want what she has. Well, I, I think I'd like to be her, you know, and uh, that is self-care. It's listening. It's not just listening to your body. It's listening to something inside that, that says, maybe I don't want to approach it that way today. Maybe I want to do something else. Maybe I need to go outside, you know. Forest bathing. Oh, that's one. We're on the We're, we're on, on the one, there you go. One. one tick mark by forest bathing. <laughs> we are on our way. So I think people are nowadays feel so disconnected from both their bodies and sort of their spirit or whatever you want to call it. And I think people actually would like to do more self-care, but maybe they have trouble recognizing the signs. So when you talk about that obsession with something that you love and it kind of goes from a fun obsession to unhealthy obsession, what are some of the warning signs or triggers you've seen with, with people? There's a very, very difficult calculation that you can do am I happy when I'm doing this? <laughs> if the answer is anything but yes, that's a sign. <laughs> and I know that's tough. I know yeah. that's going to be really hard for people. <laughs> but I think yeah. when you're doing the thing that you allegedly love, uh, whether it's painting or writing or knitting or, you know, whatever, making music, whatever mm -hmm. that thing is, if you're doing it, you can stop for a moment and just say, am I happy doing this? Then you can start opening that Pandora's box full of questions like, did somebody suggest this when I was a child and I never <laughs> wanted to do it at all? Yeah. Or maybe I wanted to do something else, but that well-meaning parent or teacher or whatever said, no, you should do this instead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that just takes root in the mind, and we end up doing this thing to please somebody else. So if you just pause and ask yourself every now and then, am I happy doing this? You know, there have been times when I've been writing. I've been a writer for, like, most of my adult life. It's like 30 years now or something like that. And I've had to pause sometimes and say, does this make me happy? And that's so interesting because day to day, whether you're writing or you're making art, there are going to be minutes, hours, days where it's not making you happy. Right. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily the wrong thing forever. It's just sort of you have to... It sounds like what you're saying is that you have to kind of navigate the bad days and kind of keep the bigger picture in mind, too. Yeah. But, like, but also be ready to answer, like, is this still making me happy? Right. Like something uh, that yeah. used to make you happy or did for so long and it's not anymore. Sometimes I think we think that's a personal failing, like we're oh, failing right. it when, in fact, we've grown in a direction we didn't anticipate and Facing that is sort of like a fearful, fraught occasion, mm -hmm. but sometimes it is, right? Even for artists who are doing something as simple, literally as simple as switching from 
let's say, oil painting to watercolor. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I've I've dealt with artists who are like, you know, I just I'm struggling to the but and I I'm drawn to this, but then almost like they're ashamed and explaining mm. away an interest or something that divorces them to, from the from this profile or this fixed idea of themselves that they're not sure if they can you know accommodate it when it's mm-hmm. like no you're just you're evolving it's it's beautiful that is a beautiful thing i think all types of creativity are related i think it's not like you're a painter and you can't do anything else you know so <laughs> right. when have you ever met an artist who couldn't do something else yeah. you know like they dress with incredible style. I'm not talking about like designer fashions. I'm talking about like they made their outfit or something like that. Mm -hmm. Just their style. Or they cook like you can't even believe. You know, they had like six ingredients and three of them were packets of Chinese mustard and they made a gourmet (laughs) meal. You know, I mean, creative... I I believe that everybody is creative and Mm -hmm. I believe that creativity manifests in different ways. But I also think if you don't pause to recognize that maybe you've fallen out of love with something for a little while Mm -hmm. and you go to that it's forever place, you can enter into that other myth besides this this sad artist (laughs) thing of like the artist block thing, which I think is a myth. I think that's people going, oh, my God, I've burnt out on something. It's over forever. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm doomed Mm -hmm. to a life of despair, worse even than my artistic despair, which I really (laughs) bought into because I thought that made me a better artist. But now I'm just like despair across the board. Mm -hmm. And no amount of forest bathing (laughs) to get that out of me. And I think that's a myth. I think you just have to, as you said, I think you just have to switch it up. You know, I did um, last summer, I did a hundred days project where I got the uh, tiny little sketchbook and I was going to do 100 portraits in 100 days. And I did this and I was like, this is amazing. I'm learning how to draw faces. Oh, my God. And people on Sketchy were like, this is so cool. You're doing, oh, my God, your style. And at the end of the 100 days, I was like, God, I'm so burnt out. I never want to draw another (laughs) face again. My goodness, I had no idea I could get so tired of this. And it was really hard for me to draw. And I felt a little lost at sea for about a week or two and then all of a sudden it dropped into my head like like little raindrops falling on you it was like knitting I was like what (laughs) where did that come from did I see somebody knitting no just knitting and Mm. I thought okay fine because I'm one of those people who like follows that thing in your head I have been so happy I'm just I'm making art in a different way. I mm-hmm. just seem to be making art instead of my colored pencils and my markers. Mm-hmm. I'm now making it with yarn. Okay. <laughs> Did you experience any kind of identity shift? Did you have any kind of pushback within yourself? Like, what does it mean that now I'm doing art with knitting? Or was it a pretty seamless transition? No, it was definitely a questioning period of Mm -hmm. like, but I was calling myself an artist. Does this mean I can't call myself an artist anymore (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I'm a knitter now? Well, and being a knitter is kind of great. But then (laughs) when you see all of these people, like if you get involved with something, if the notion comes to you, like, Mm -hmm. okay, knitting, just to use my example, you start seeking out other people who are doing this. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the great things about social media, especially Instagram, is that, you know, because it's so visually oriented, mm -hmm. you can now see all of these people doing these amazing things. There are artists out there who simply use yarn instead of paint and markers and pencils. And they're creating these incredible things. I'm, I'm in love with yarn bombers. I know that sometimes yeah. <laughs> they don't like that title. So I'll say yarn graffiti artists, which they prefer, like... Um, Olek is an incredible artist who crochets like bizarre, gorgeous art. She's the mm -hmm. one who will cover an entire car mm -hmm. or a house or things with crochet art. So legit. London Kay, incredible crochet artist, mm -hmm. and she's so sought after right now. So when you see that, you're like, I want to learn how to knit crochet <laughs> and be an artist with yarn. So after my questioning period where I was like, oh, I can't be an artist anymore. I'm just a washed up whatever I am. My yoga teacher who like teaches about the mind and whatever. And so and then I find these people. I'm like, I'm knitting now. I'm a knitting artist. I, I art knit. <laughs> I'm all proud totally. of it. And That's so legit. Well, but it's also because it comes from you, and you are this wellspring of creativity, and it's allowed to have many tributaries to <laughs> circle. You know what I mean? It you are allowed to like flow it that way. Yeah. Yeah, and when we say you, Courtney's not referring to me specifically. No. We're using the, the universal you. you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but back to you, you. Oh. Me. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your book and, and what made you decide to write it? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> so Yoga Mind came from uh, a couple of different uh, reasons, but ma mainly because a very dear friend of mine, Francesco Clark, uh, in 2002 had a diving accident that left him quadriplegic. And that was very shocking because he's this young, vibrant guy who uh, just like on a holiday weekend followed a whim, took a dive, broke his neck in the pool and emerged in a different life, mm -hmm. uh, being told he would never move anything below his shoulders again. So this was, you know, quite a big crisis for him, for his family. Um, we'd worked together at a magazine. I had just graduated from yoga teacher training at the time because I wanted to be this yoga teacher who helped people by teaching yoga. And then all of a sudden, here's somebody who really needs help and he can't move. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, does that mean he can't, quote unquote, do yoga? Mm -hmm. And it started me thinking about in this country, in most Western countries, when we think of yoga, we think it's a form of exercise. Mm -hmm. It's actually not. It's a spiritual path of life that helps people get happier, helps them find inner peace, helps them access their creativity. Mm -hmm. And it's a set of spiritual tools of which physical poses, postures, are but one tiny part. Mm -hmm. So... In working with Francesco, we concentrated on these yoga tools, 30 of which I put into this book as I tell his story. He's amazing. I mean, he's he's still in a wheelchair. He's also the head of his own skincare empire, Clark's Botanicals, where he's regularly on QVC selling out. I did not put that together. Oh, I'm shit. about three quarters of the way through your book, and I just put that. Okay. Yes, <laughs> That's yes. Exciting. He's that Clark's Botanicals okay. Okay. with all of the big celebrity uh, customers yeah. and all of that. He's also an ambassador for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. Mm -hmm. He's, I am amazed he even has time for me, you know, I mean, he's, uh, he's like, oh, do you want to have dinner? I'm like, you have time for the likes of me. This is incredible. 
So I wanted to tell his story because it's so incredibly inspiring, but also these these spiritual tools that yoga has for us, people don't hear about them in yoga classes. There's just not enough time. People go there for exercise. They feel all calm. They feel blissed out. They leave the class, and then they're like, oh, my God, it's so noisy out here and in my head. <laughs> Why can't I feel that blissful like I did on the mat outside? Mm-hmm. You can. You just have to learn how to use these tools. So I put them together in a 30-day program, mm-hmm. and uh, now, you know, everybody can have them. Mm-hmm. And the world will be changed. This is exactly <laughs> this is why beginning. I wrote the book, <laughs> yep. because the world is getting really nutty-seeming, like <laughs> nuttier than usual. And I know for me... I've had my periods of depression that come along with what you were talking about before. It's like, if you have any desire to express your creativity, you're also going to have these like periods where you Mm -hmm. go, why am I doing this? Is it any good? You know, what is this? And I thought these, these tools are really important for me. You know, they help me. Mm -hmm. They've actually helped me access my creativity. They've led to me expressing my creativity in more than just like me talking to my cats, for example, (laughs) about how I really want to become a yarn artist, Norman and B. And thank you for purring when I say that to go beyond and to just like actually, I don't know, pick up, you know, a piece of paper and write on it, draw on it go get some yarn and make something out of it. These spiritual tools have really helped me manifest that. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, you know, I want great acclaim or anything. It's just like I want to not be depressed by suppressing my creativity. Right. Yeah. That's a very real thing. Yes. I was also thinking about when you were talking about the world seeming nuttier and nuttier seeming, which it does, Hand in hand with that, there is kind of this movement towards self-care, but I also see this underside where there are people who actively kind of roll their eyes at the notion of self-care. And I'm wondering if you have any theories about where that comes from or or why that happens. This idea would have been entirely foreign to anybody who's ever worked at the Oprah magazine, read the Oprah magazine, (laughs) heard the name Oprah, where self-care reigns supreme. Like in the Oprah kingdom, it's all self-care and life Mm -hmm. comes after that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's not an indulgence. It's just the idea that if you don't take care of yourself first, how Mm -hmm. can you possibly take care of anything else effectively? And it's true Mm -hmm. because Think about it. For a week, you do no self-care whatsoever. You don't do anything you enjoy. You don't do anything that either physically, emotionally, or spiritually feels good to you. What are you going to be like to other people? This is the birth of road rage. Yeah. (laughs) This is why people want conceal and carry laws for guns, because they're really upset. (laughs) I believe that they're just terribly, terribly sad And like they haven't done anything that they enjoyed, haven't gotten any, you know, happiness Mm -hmm. in their lives. And then you compare it to a week where you're like, I really love baking cookies. I'm going to bake some cookies. I'm going to eat some cookies (laughs) and I'm going to give some cookies away. That's going to make other people happy and that makes me happy. What a great idea. The whole house (laughs) smells like cookies. You know, I I mean, it's it's like you you do that. You go take a yoga class or fencing or whatever it is that you want to do. You make time to make your music or your art or your knitting or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's not all like 
things that you have to do, suddenly you're a nicer person because you're happy. Mm -hmm. And if you're happy, like one of my yoga tools is Maitri, Mm -hmm. kindness. Uh, It's usually thought of as kindness to other people, but I really believe that it's very difficult to be kind to other people if you're not in some way being kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. So if... For example, you did something like first thing in the morning that was an act of self-kindness, whatever that's going to be. I'm going to take a few minutes and meditate. I am definitely getting my favorite kind of coffee mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or whatever. Some form of self-kindness, you're naturally going to be happier and that happiness is going to spread to other people. You're going to be kinder to other people. So where does Maitri fit in? Maitri? Maitri, my Maitri. tree. Your Where does tree. that fit in? <laughs> Where does that fit in for the artist? How can you apply some of those principles to when you're creating art, when you're looking at your own art, where I think sometimes people are very self-critical um, to the detriment of their creativity and their art? Yeah, that is, I believe, the main tool that I use for creativity, just because of what you said, you know, mm-hmm. the self-critical. It's a lot of compare and despair. For creativity, Uh, for creative, for people who are really make a point of being creative, it's a lot of like, you know, my life, is it okay? Uh, What I'm doing, is it all right? Is it good enough? Well, it's not as good as that person's Mm -hmm. art or music or, you know, yarn art or whatever. Um, There's so much compare and despair. It's like the moment you start comparing, despair will follow. That's it. Because you're either putting yourself up on a pedestal, which, you know, as you said before, is like really not where you want to be, or you're kicking yourself off of it, which is, you know, a yoga move that we don't recommend. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that Maitri has been like the A number one thing that I go to because Mm -hmm. I need to recognize the difference between negative Mm self-talk, that critical inner voice, and fact Mm. because they're not the same thing. You know, if, oh, yeah. I'm not that good at this. This book is, is like, I don't know if it's that. And I'm like, where's your fact? Can you right. back it up? You know, I've got a little Perry Mason jury going on in my head. Like, where are your facts? And <laughs> when I can't produce any, I'm like, oh, right. I have to be a little kinder to myself about yeah. this. And that goes back to the joy thing. Why am I doing this? Yeah, It brings me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. It brings other people joy potentially. Good enough. That's right. it. That's it. Yeah, and anyone in the art world will identify, I think, with the scary but constant tendency to look over your shoulder to see what someone else is doing. I learned, like, when when I moved to New York and I was starting to curate art shows, right, and, you know, that was dirty garages and weird undergrounds, and you're like, oh, my God, is the art world, and my hands are, like, raised above my head, like, is this giant art world judging me? And I'm like don't even think that way like don't look over your shoulder that is you're just gonna first of all trip over the thing you're trying to do Mm -hmm. and you're trying to make and then the end it's like it doesn't matter it's Mm. a step forward for yourself but that has been the biggest gift I was able to realize about my myself and my creative projects it's like don't look over your shoulder it will never it will never look good that way that vantage point is Mm -hmm. just it's always a disservice to your creative energy and and the things that you maybe aren't able to quote unquote see but are there the relationships the the interconnectedness and just the pure like experiences that you that you help others come to and you come to yourself so yeah exactly exactly and 
One of, I mean, it's not to say like never look at other people's work, listen to other people's work or anything no. like that. But one of the things I talk about in the book is to make that perspective do a yoga pose of a headstand and turn it upside down. So instead of feeling envy, you feel inspiration. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, all right, well, how did that person get there? What did they do? Like, what are the influences? You play a little game with yourself of like spot the influences. And how did they actually get that going, you know, and you talk to them. I've written fan letters to writers, artists, people, and just said, you know what, I really love your work, and I just want to know, like, how'd you do that? And I've made really close friends out really? of my fan letters. Yeah, I, was I just sometimes I just don't even ask them anything. I'm like, I just have a huge crush on your work. <laughs> I have a creativity crush on you. I love you, and just please keep doing what you're doing. And they're like, oh my <laughs> God, you just saved me. I was headed for a pit of despair which happens all the time, yeah. you know, the, that email will arrive at just the right time. That Instagram comment arrives at just the right... I, I post every day on Instagram, and every day I go, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Nobody cares. And somebody will invariably say, I love this. This is so great. Thank you. Yeah. The timing is amazing. And I'm like, oh, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> and it can be pure appreciation. Like, why can't we... Like you said, it, it's, you know, it's not a diminishing thing when you look to someone else's work and realize it's great. It, that's that's awesome. That means all of us are doing the right things and we're colliding because of that awesome energy, you know? So one of the other ways that people kind of, you know, make an effort to recharge um, is through retreats. And part of the reason that we have you here today is that you are going to be leading a retreat for us in New England this spring. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and kind of what you have in store for us. That retreat is something that <laughs> I would definitely want to go on myself. It's like, that's the fun thing about retreats is that, you know, usually you go on them and you're like, oh, I'm hoping for the best. That sounds really good. This one, I was like, I'm designing the retreat that I would want to go on. This is awesome. So, yeah, uh, meditations on drawing is kind of exactly that. It's a very apt description of what a I'm getting into this idea of creative meditation because we were talking about this recently. People have a crazy idea about meditation. First of all, they say, I can't meditate. It's the first thing they say. I've been teaching yoga and meditation for about like uh, since 2002. Mm -hmm. And I will say meditation, people, oh, I can't meditate. And I'm like, do you know what meditation is? And they're like, no, but I know I can't do it. <laughs> And I'm thinking, well, you know, if you don't know what it is, and you know, what it is, is so subjective, because I can't know, I can teach you a technique, you'll be doing it completely different than I will. So and that's fine, whatever works for people, but people have this idea that they're supposed to clear their minds of, med you know, for meditation, no thoughts whatsoever. People, we are not engineered that way. We were not supposed to stop thinking because we would have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> so it's just a question of not really going along with the thoughts in the same way that you might be standing on a street corner looking at traffic and not deliberately run into the traffic. Please do not run Very into the traffic right. of your thoughts. Just stand there and watch the cars go by. Oh, cars, interesting. I might want to draw those. So <laughs> this is the idea. Uh, meditations on drawing is using the idea of creating art as a form of meditation. There's a yoga tool called dharana, which is the beginning stages of meditation, where you're just starting to tune out the rest of the world, and you're really getting into that zone, that flow, and you're like, oh, 
this is why I do this. This You're not even saying it to yourself. You're just feeling like this feels really good right now. I'm just, I'm drawing. It's like I, kind of like when you're driving and you're like, I'm just driving. This is awesome. <laughs> it's, you know, so using creativity and art as a form of meditation so that you can, first of all, have a different form of meditation. Um, second of all, really lower the volume on that critical inner voice that goes, oh, that's no good. You should have done this. You should have done that, whatever. We don't really need that voice when we're creating art, you know, or making music or whatever we're doing. We don't really need that. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful or necessary. So this form of meditation that we'll be doing in different ways in beautiful, beautiful seaside Newburyport, Massachusetts. I cannot wait to get to this place. <laughs> oh my goodness. It looks like if you're reading a really good novel and they're describing a seaside town and you kind of, oh, I wish I lived there. Boom. Newburyport, Massachusetts. <laughs> it's like a postcard New England town. Yes, it yeah. really is. It's the postcard. There is so much to draw there that I may have a brief meltdown of just deciding... <laughs> My goodness, what, what are we going So we're going to really, like, bring in the powers of meditation to, like, harness the focus, choose mm -hmm. the thing, and just become completely, in a way, to, like, fall in love with one thing and the action of creating this art mm -hmm. and experiencing that love because that's what meditation is. Mm -hmm. It's just, like, this very quiet feeling of falling in love with something that you can't define oh wow seriously Suzanne be my like inner, inner voice, voice all the time it's so no problem <laughs> I can be hired to do that <laughs> you are definitely not looking for yoga masters or expert meditators or lifelong artists necessarily I would actually welcome anybody who says I can't do yoga I can't meditate <laughs> and you can't make me and I will be like embracing I'm already you. coming Suzanne yeah that's right that's right good okay so we've got one uh, <laughs> yeah I I think that um, my idea of yoga is really aligned with uh, people who sit on the couch constantly mm -hmm. and people who say they can't meditate because I'm all about accessible yoga. I do the kind of yoga that I ask you, does it feel good? And you go, yes. And I'm like, there you go. You're doing mm -hmm. it correctly. Mm -hmm. If you don't feel pain, you're doing that yoga pose correctly. Yeah. Mine is a more meditative approach to yoga. It's very gentle, but it is very effective because it achieves the results that we want, which are, wow, I feel so serene. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I want is the uh-huh of serene yeah. <laughs> feelings. And the kind of meditation that we're going to be doing is what people do when they are making art or they want to make art. Just minus that little gremlin in your head that yeah. goes, shouldn't you be doing the laundry? And it's like, no. I really shouldn't be. I should be making art right now, and the mm -hmm. laundry will come when the laundry comes, you know. Mm -hmm. So in beautiful Newburyport, <laughs> I mean, really, it's kind of like the thing in life that you say, if only I could go on a retreat at a beautiful seaside town for a long weekend, <laughs> I'd be able to make some art. If somebody could, you know, in a soothing voice, calm me down and maybe give me a little exercise so the blood doesn't pool in my butt while I'm making art... <laughs> Well, your prayers have been answered. <laughs> just come with. Don't argue with yourself. Just come with. Let's, Love that. Yeah.
So I was wondering if we could all kind of go around and everybody share some of your own self-care routines. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I want to hear Suzanne first. Are we putting it on Suzanne first? Yeah, definitely. Oh, my goodness. I don't get to take any inspiration. (laughs) It doesn't have to be everything. And then something that doesn't, and then something that doesn't work for you, maybe. Because, Mm -hmm. like, sometimes we have expectations of, like, like self-care is this, but, like, something you're like, that doesn't work for me. Because I would really enjoy knowing that. (laughs) I can start with what doesn't work for me. I I definitely have a compare and despair problem. And um, being a writer who works at home alone Uh, being a very different kind of yoga teacher who teaches yoga of the mind predominantly and yoga of the body secondarily, um, I oftentimes think, well, okay, I should be at my desk at 9 a.m. and I will continue to plug on through until 5 p.m. with perhaps a few bathroom breaks. You know, if I am good, I will reward myself with the ability to go pee. And that doesn't work for me, Um, surprisingly. That is not the way I write books. That is not the way I make art. That is not the way anybody should do anything, really. Um, So what does work for me is kind of taking my temperature every day. Every day I wake up and I do a breathing exercise that we do at the start of every yoga class called Dirga Swasam. And if you don't like speaking Sanskrit, as I do, um, (laughs) you can call it three-part breathing. So it's the kind of breathing where you would start by expanding the muscles of your abdomen and bring the breath all the way to the top of your chest in this really nice wave-like motion of filling your lungs in a gentle way, Mm -hmm. not to the point where you're gasping or feeling like, oh my God, but then, and you just empty the lungs from the top down and you just do this in a very, it's very gentle. It feels like the kind of uh, sigh of relief Mm -hmm. type of breath. Like you would inhale and go, but you would just do it through your nose and you do a couple of rounds of that and you can really get a gauge of your internal temperature of what kind of day you would like it to be. Mm -hmm. Not what's this day going to throw at me now, but more, okay, today this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to meditate for a few minutes, which really works for me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there has to be some flexibility there. I can sit cross-legged on the floor and meditate in the classic pose and la, 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 because I'm a yoga teacher, blah, blah. But that does not always work for me. And the day that the head is full of scrambled eggs and spaghetti sauce and all (laughs) that, it's just like too many thoughts, too many thoughts. I may have to sit and knit for a few minutes Mm -hmm. because when I'm knitting, I can't really think about anything else. And that really quiets everything down. So that allowance of, you know what, I don't feel like doing this today. I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, what else works for me? Hot chocolate breaks really work <laughs> for me. Boy, do those work for me. They've been working like a charm for me lately. <laughs> um, you know, getting up and moving around um, and not feeling like I have to power through something. Um, making things fun. Not I have to, but I want to. I want mm-hmm. to do this. I would like to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing the three things list now. I set three things that I need to accomplish today instead of writing down 60 things that I'm never oh, going wow. to accomplish. It's just busy work. It's like, oh, look how busy and important I am. I have 60 things that I need to do today, and not one of them is going to get done because I've now just freaked myself out. Yeah. No, three things. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do that. Mm-hmm. And there's a hot chocolate break in there. <laughs> oh, my God. And yeah, I, I, that is so much more manageable. Mm. So it's making things manageable, doing my breathing exercise to take my internal temperature of what kind of day it's going to be in, mm-hmm. of course, hot chocolate. 
Okay, so some of my self-care routine would be, I think I'm a really tactile person. So when I can do things with my hands um, or sort of do things where I can integrate my body, I feel better. So exercise is one of those things. But for me, taking baths is another one. I take a bath every night, which I feel some guilt about, but try to work on the environment in other ways. Um, I take a bath and read every night. Um, when I make art, I feel like I do it best when I'm kind of just doing it with my bare hands. Um, baking is another thing. So where I'm actually like interacting with the physical world, I feel like is where I get the most satisfaction. Um, and then I think being aware of my triggers really helps. Um, for me, my environment, I like it to be sort of organized. Um, if things are kind of piling up in the corner, I, I feel like things are piling up in my brain. So that's important to me. And for me, like keeping my apartment tidy is like not so much a, a thing that I have to do. It's something that brings me a sense of uh, peace. And this sounds so silly, but a couple of weeks ago I bought this uh, – $10 plastic thing on Amazon that helps you fold your clothes. Mm -hmm. So they all are like exactly the same looking and you can do it like nine times faster. And all of a sudden it's a joy for me to sit <laughs> and kind of get into this flow where I'm just like folding laundry. And then at the end, I just marvel at how beautiful it looks. <laughs> and I have respect for my things again and things don't end up on the floor. You're going to send me that URL. Right? Yes, I will. It's $10. Um, yeah, so that's one of my triggers. I have to say one of the things that um, doesn't work is, is very similar to something you mentioned where um, I've gotten caught up in the whole idea that you have to meditate sitting up. Um, Cross-legged is uncomfortable for me, but, like, that's the way you're supposed to do it. And so I really rigidly tried to adhere to that, and I had trouble sticking to um, a meditation practice. So the day I kind of gave myself permission to do it laying down, it was like the whole thing opened up. And it's so silly. Who would ever, one, know I'm doing it laying down besides me, two, judge me for it. So it it was something that really I had to kind of look back and think like, why, why am I stressing myself out over something that doesn't matter? Um, yeah, and that's really improved my practice since then. For me, I guess I have things that operate like in the head space and then in the physical world space. And the two biggest ones that of late have brought me so much more calmness is no expectations, good or bad. Like I can sometimes get nervous just about maybe like what's going to happen when I walk down the street, right? For no good reason because mm -hmm. I'm just feeling something. And instead of that, just having the expectation that like it's not going to be great or it's not going to be terrible. It's just it's going to be what it is mm -hmm. and letting it be what it is and being totally like OK with that has been awesome. And I feel a lot less weighted down by expectations in general because get over yourself. You don't know. Like that's the is whole that something thing. you had to grow into. Yeah, definitely. Or it's something that I feel like that's the latest ability like saying it that way has made it clear to me mm. what I've been doing in the past like had already thought I knew what was going to be and I I obey and respect my instincts they're not the same as being what pre, like precognitive and able mm -hmm. to you know know everything um and then the other thing would probably just be not past not future present like mm -hmm. being intensely present when I feel myself verging on stressors just being like just demand best self in this moment, mm -hmm. not anywhere else, just right here. And then 
you will be okay. And then the next moment and just being there and letting it, you know, getting the most out of it, let it be a rich thing where you learn or are humble or (laughs) egg on your face and you're like, oh my God, you know, but like just being present there, it it has really helped me feel like I'm not um, like flotsam and jetsam, you know, just Uh like being crashed about by all the the past things and the future, what they'll be. So those are the head things, Uh I think. The like body things, cake definitely (laughs) at least once a week gotta have it um (laughs) i know all the bakeries in all the best towns and um, they know me um and then also you know for me not feeling bad that i want to sweat like i work out i kickbox Mm -hmm. i have aggressive things inside me or assertive things if we're being you know (laughs) that want out and i'm like for a while it was like oh that's not allowed but i'm like Finding a safe way to let those things out is beautiful and it exhausts me in the very best way so that I'm like, ah, that's empty. That bucket was overflowing. Now it's empty. Now I can fill it up again. There's no judgment there. That's okay. Like Mm -hmm. being able to just like be aligned with that as opposed to being like, oh, well, you know. Like, you want to be a ballerina. Like, ballerina stuff never worked for me. I was more like, you know, I just, I wanted to jump and push and, you know, do the things. And now it's like being okay with that and finding those really healthful ways to do that. And also, you know, because I I teach kickboxing, being able to make that a, yeah, make that a connective thing, right? How have I not known this? I also kickbox. (laughs) Have we never talked about this? Who told? You know, it's so weird because, like, that's, I mean, it's. Because I think a lot of people have associations that are like, you want to punish someone? I'm like, no. Like, I just want to, like, let this out. Like, there's this very physical. Let the tiger out of the cage. (laughs) It's what keeps you from punishing people. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, no, that's been a really, like, those have been really good things. Um, And then, but mostly for me, it's been, like, learning to be kind to myself. Like, my voice inside, negative. It can be super Hmm. negative really easily. And a friend of mine he, um, Sam, I was telling you about this. He's the one who wanted to learn about the like past life regression thing. And, you mm-hmm. know, he needed a student or a guinea pig of which I was volunteer. Cause he was <laughs> like, I think you won't bullshit me. Like, I think you'll be like, I'm not feeling this. We'll <laughs> try harder or whatever. But it was something where we were talking about negative thoughts have like literally in the brain there. How do I, how did he say this? Pathways in the brain are are there. They exist. If you have negative ones, your mind is going to tend to go down those same paths. Relearning is a really great way to do that, but that requires like a mindfulness. Like mm-hmm. bringing like if you have like a negative thought, okay, give yourself th- an opportunity right there to have three positive thoughts. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean, being the antidote of maybe your own your your inner critic. Because you actually are rewiring that path in your brain. And I think for a long time I didn't understand that. I think I thought that, oh, that's just something people say. (laughs) I say positive things about myself, but I don't really feel it. (laughs) But that doesn't matter, per se, if you are consciously trying to change those things. Eventually there's going to be a day where you don't have to try quite as hard. It's neuroplasticity Mm. because um, the analogy that they use that's really effective is it's the same as if you run your finger in the sand repeatedly, Mm. that groove gets deeper and deeper and deeper so that if we think the same thought over and over, it strengthens the thought, whatever that thought is. If it's a negative one, 
we're going to make it more and more and more and more the go-to. It's until we confuse it with fact. But if you start thinking about a positive thought, counteract it somehow, you know, even with a question of like, is that really true? Or is that something somebody said to me (laughs) that I believed because I was nine and I couldn't get my own studio apartment, you know, (laughs) then, you know, you have a chance to counteract it. But it is like the more you think something, the more it becomes your go-to. Yeah. Do you, I would love around Robin like this, but talking specifically about like artists and creatives, like what are the kind of things we recommend to artists about self-care that would be specific to like, you know, like studio practice or making things? Like for example, um, I'll start just because I (laughs) say, I was afraid she's going to be like, I don't know what the hell you're (laughs) uh, talking about. (laughs) Um, But I would say, I mean, the first one is, going into the studio and and go to what grabs you the strongest and like not not even questioning it don't hesitate don't self-evaluate and that means you're sort of putting on the brakes already just go with it 15 minutes of just doing whatever whatever it is like be the magpie brightest object snatch it up Mm. bring it back to the nest build on it um and the second one is don't go it alone artists like that's the one that i'm saddened the most about because I think artists and creatives are our most valuable citizens in point of fact like and the fact that we think that sometimes they are operating in isolation um, and then we sort of make that a fact Um, instead connect connect with other people connect with someone who's never done art as well as mentors that can help you further on your path or someone who might need what you bring to the table and that's a beautiful self-discovery moment too so like mitigate that being in the studio alone I mean gosh I can be I have my hermit moments when I'm like no one's talking to me no one's asking things I'm loving this I you know it's like an unwinding thing but also the human connection is so incredibly I mean I'm gonna say for me the most important thing for me in this world so it's like connect connect big and small and consistently and often and you know and let that let that be the way. So it's funny. I feel like I have the exact opposite instinct. <laughs> no, no, no. D- the exact opposite instinct because I feel very much like I'm an introvert. So I always constantly have to fight um, the desire to stay home and not interact. And I dread it. I hate, hate, hate going out. I dread it. And then I go out and I have the best time. And the older I get, the more I'm learning. That I'm, like, putting a false idea in my head and I'm worrying for no reason. Um, But I had a really energizing moment. Last year I went to see a friend's documentary. And, of course, like, I know nothing about filmmaking, um, had not seen her movie. And it was just a whole bunch of her friends and everybody kind of came at it from a different creative angle and a different creative background. And I realized I was more energized than I had probably ever been before being around a group of people. And I knew hardly anyone. Um, And that moment was really transformative for me. And I I feel lucky that I got to work with you um, because, no. I'm blushing. Yeah. Because Because she's she's amazing. (laughs) Because it it makes a difference to go to a place every day where people are energizing you. And so that's something that's really important. Um, And I would also say this is easier said than done, but trying to get past perfectionism um, I know my my primary mode of creativity is through writing, and 
that's just a fruitless quest to try to be a perfectionist while you're writing. Your first draft, your third draft, whatever it is, is going to be not perfect. Um, But if you kind of keep yourself in that prison, you're not going to create anything. So for me, that's one of the things um, that I really strive to do. And easier said than done, but I'm getting better the more I put effort into it. I think perfection is so boring. It is. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like... There's no color. There's no style. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at poets, where's the perfection in that? Their mm-hmm. punctuation is off. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's like we don't want to go around correcting that, though. <laughs> For me, uh, I rely very heavily on the spiritual concept of beginner's mind where you approach everything, even something that you've been doing for years and decades, and you think you know it well, but every day is new, and you never know what you're going to create if you create from the standpoint of a beginner, where you have no expectations, and you have no preconceived notions. It's like, you know, did I know how this book was going to turn out when I started writing it? Absolutely not. Did I even know that I was going to write it? Not really. (laughs) I had an entirely different concept in mind. And then this book pops out and I'm like, where'd you come from? (laughs) And it's because I approach after 30 years, I go to the desk and I'm like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen today, but let's just see, you know, what happens. And it's always so much fun because it's a surprise. And the whole like... You know, I go around thinking of myself, yes, I'm an artist, you know, whatever. And it's like, nope, not right now. Now you're a knitter. And I'm like, really? Wow. Okay. But, you know, beginner's mind. It was like, okay, well, let me go take some lessons then. And there I got into a community where I had contact with these other super creative people who were like, this is how you do this. And I'm like, oh, my God, you this is great. You in your book, too. Yes. Right? Uh, the Sangha. In yoga, it's called a Sangha um, and some other traditions as well. A Sangha is a group of like-minded people. And they can be your friends or they can be total strangers. Uh, the unifying concept is a similar quest of some sort. You know, so anything from um, a hospital support group for people going through cancer treatment is a sangha. You know, you're all like on that quest. You're all going through the same thing. It's a unifying thing. Um, A group of people that you do yoga classes with is a sangha, especially if you get into the same group all the time. Um, 12-step recovery groups can be a sangha. Because you're all having a similar experience. You're on the path of recovery. If you get together regularly with artist friends and you talk about what you're working on, and if you don't get together regularly with artist friends, please do find some (laughs) and get out of the house and get together with them because other people don't really understand when you say, yeah, you know, I started making this painting and then it just went off and they go, uh-huh. They have no <laughs> relative point to it whatsoever. But your artist friends will go, oh my God, isn't that amazing what that happens? That happened to me last week. And suddenly you don't feel like the lone crazy person anymore. <laughs> you feel like, oh good, I do have a tribe. I'm legit. I'm not, you know, like an insane person, which leads to the sad boy syndrome that you were uh, talking yeah. about before. But yeah, um, I think that beginner's mind opens the door to so many things. It, it, it opens the door to not having any expectations, to going down an artistic creative path that you might not have foreseen. Um, it brings you into contact with other like-minded people. And 
it really turns the volume down on that critical inner voice that says, you should be better at this by now. <laughs> Haven't you been doing that? When are you going to get a real job? <laughs> it's like, never. Uh, this is my real job. I don't know. But if you just go, like when you were a little kid, did you have neuroses when you were a child? Probably not. You wrote, crayons. Oh my God, there's 64 of them. There's a sharpener in the back of it. This is blowing my child mind. I've never been happier in my life and I probably never will be again. But that's okay because I'm in this, you know, go back to that. Yep. Go back to that moment every day and just, you know, like I open my computer. I'm like, this is amazing. There's a blank sheet of paper in front of me and I can erase anything I want to. Oh my God, this blows my mind like the sharpener in the back of that box. And I can smell the crayons all over again. Yeah, it allows for discovery. You know, I think that's a beautiful thing. So Suzanne, will you join us for a self-care landing round after this? Oh my goodness, yes. How can okay. I resist? <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Join our guest, Suzanne Cologne, along with artist instructor Gigi Chen, this May 31st through June 3rd for a long weekend of creative meditation, using art as a form of meditation in this transformative retreat. We'll visit the beautiful seaside town of Newburyport, Massachusetts, a home to artists of all kinds. Suzanne will be teaching meditation and yoga for artists, as well as giving exercises in creativity and much more. No experience is necessary. Registration is limited to 20 students. Find out more and register at artistnetwork.com under the events tab. Okay, lightning round. So for this, we're going to kind of like, I don't know, just go around and say whether or not these particular ideas that are kind of fallbacks for some people in terms of self-care, um, sometimes they're a little stereotypical, um, but we're going to say whether or not we've tried them, whether or not it's worked for us. So let's start with crystals. Suzanne, you want to start us off? They're awful pretty. Yeah. You yeah. know what? It doesn't need to go further than that. They're awful pretty. I think we can leave it there. Um, somebody in my building left a giant chunk of green soapstone for like in the free giveaway mm, pile. And so I got stone. it and yes. it looks like a, like, I don't know. It looks like it's going to power me up. Yes. So I don't know whether it works, but I like to sometimes put my hand on it like it showtime at the Apollo when they would rub like yes. the wooden thing on the way out. That's kind of sometimes on my way out the door, I rub the soapstone. If it's it makes pretty. you happy, it mm -hmm. works because yep. it's awful pretty. <laughs> All right. Horoscopes. Totally. Okay. Why? <laughs> because I need sometimes somebody else to explain what's going on in my head. And if it says you're going through a period of transition, I'm like, that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. Thank what's your you. sign? I'm, oh God, well, I'm a Virgo that's almost on the cusp of Libra, so I'm incredibly, like, anal retentive, but I can also go the other way. <laughs> no, right. I'm, I, I don't know about horoscopes, but I do agree. Like, you're like, oh yeah, that, and that's an interesting idea, but birth chart, I read it once a year. Some of these are, at least in three cases, have articulated things I've known about myself and I've never been able to put words to. So, but it's all about taking it for what it is. For me, it's this. It's like, oh, yeah, that does resonate. It's not for me a, oh, this is the directions to myself that I hadn't had until now. And like I, the way the Reagans used right. it. Like, what am I going to do about nuclear war? Right. Let me exactly. check my chart. <laughs> exactly. No, not, <laughs> not like that opposite Reagan. <laughs> What's your sign? Libra. 
Ooh. I know. We like the shiny things, the nice things. and But I'm not, I get things done, which apparently is not a Libra thing, but I don't know. It is It is for this Libra. Maybe you got a little Virgo in there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Virgo too. Um, oh, oh my oh. God. So it's like Virgo, Libra, and Virgo, Libra. We're balanced, yeah. I like it. So horoscopes, do I believe the stars at the moment when I was born influenced my life? No. But I think it's like the, is it the I Ching where you concentrate on a question and then you open a random page and it speaks to you in some way? I yes. think if you approach it like that, um, you know, how do I feel? How am I responding to what is said here? And then you can kind of suss out what is true for you, I feel like. Um, but it's funny that Susan Miller is a part of my self-care routine. On the first of the month, she publishes her horoscopes. Mm. She's the best. It's like <laughs> seven pages. And I mentally set that like on the first of the month, if I'm on the subway, like, this is my time. I'm going to read what this month is going to be like. Yeah. And it's very delicious. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Coloring books. Yes. Uh, I mean, I have I have colored with my cousin's nieces or my nieces or my cousin's kids or whatever you want to call that second cousins. They're like eight and six. And (laughs) you sound close. Yeah, (laughs) whatever. Their ages are irrespective. They're amazing. (laughs) And um, I like it. I, I the colors. It brings me back to something I really enjoyed. And I'll take that. No. No, doesn't do anything no, for no, you. No, Me too. I, I like looking at what people have drawn, and then I think, well, I don't want to, you know, put my mark over all somebody's <laughs> drawing there, and you know, what colors would I use anyway? I mean, if I made my own drawing, I would color it, but yeah. I just don't know that the coloring book craze never spoke to me. I was like, that's nice. Yeah, Why wouldn't you make your own drawing? Because people wanted to zen out; they just mm-hmm. wanted to color. And having done pieces I've done drawings where it just required a lot of like coloring with color pencils oh my god I love like you're just sitting there going back and forth back and forth back and forth and it's like this is so zen and I can do it with my left hand and my yes. right hand and it doesn't matter and it's you're great you're not doing it with an like little no. bird wing no yeah. no and it's just those have never really they never really grabbed me yep. so it's more power to the people who love them though <laughs> <laughs> all right tarot I don't know anything about tarot except what people have like shown me or done things and I dig it. I mean, I, I like the characters of the tarot and the way I'm like, Oh, that's a, this kind of thing. Oh, she's about that. But I don't, I don't know anything more. Love it. Love really? it. Love it. Yeah. Tell me why. Um, well, for some reason there's this thing with like yoga teachers and tarot. I don't know why. <laughs> you go into any yoga studio and chances are if they've got a gift shop, they've got tarot. But um, the kind of tarot that I use is called the tarot of the spirit. And uh, there's a lot of yoga reference in the tarot. Uh, not exactly in the uh, art on mm-hmm. the tarot, but that's the other reason I love tarot cards is because it's art with hidden messages in it. Oh, it's like, that's not just a crab. It's what the crab is doing to your mind. <laughs> but yeah, I love I love the art of tarot, mm-hmm. like tarot card art, because there's so many different yes. kinds of decks. Mm-hmm. And people are so creative with you know, basic archetypes, you know, the tarot is the tarot, yes. but then it's open to so much interpretation. Yes. And what people have done with it, like manga tarot, mm-hmm. <laughs> so fun. Kitty cat tarot, so cute. You know, it's like, and then you get the real mystical ones that are very deep uh-huh. and you get the, you know, the witch tarots and all of that kind of stuff. So from a creative standpoint, it can do a lot for you. But I think like astrology, it's just another tool and the I Ching and all of that. Yeah. It's just another tool because... 
It's not, tarot is not actually for fortune telling. It's more for present moment revelations. So you pick a bunch of cards and you're like, this is your state of mind right now, according to your interpretation of what is basically a more ornate Rorschach blot. So it's fun. I love it. That's awesome. I've never heard it described that way. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Anyway, I have nothing more to add on that one. <laughs> okay. Um, You've said it. You've said it all. Oh, RPG, no. <laughs> so role-playing games and cosplay. Never done it. Uh, Dress-up was my favorite childhood sport, so <laughs> I think it's got to be worth something. But no, I've never done it, I guess, in the, the adult world or mm-hmm. in that particular avenue. Um, cosplay, I guess, you know, like, I mean, I don't think I can glorify getting dressed up for Halloween as cosplay. I mean, cosplay is a thing. Halloween is not a thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's just an everybody thing. But, um, I know that I used to volunteer at Comic-Con for the Hero Initiative. The Hero Initiative is a charity, uh, for artists and animators and anybody to do with the comic industry who's fallen upon hard times in old age. So I would go and man the booth, help, you know, as one of the volunteers. And at Comic-Con, watching the cosplay is incredible for your creativity because these are costumes that are homemade. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going out to the store and buying something with like a 30-foot wingspan to pretend to be a manga character or something from a game. It's incredible what people can do in terms of cosplay, and I love it. And even if you don't do it, just looking at it, just looking at it going by the parade at Comic-Con, I was, like, blown away by it. So I heartily approve while I do not engage myself. (laughs) Can you, do you feel comfortable briefly explaining your connection to the comic book world? Oh, yeah, definitely. So my father, Ernie Cologne, is kind of a big deal in the comic book world because he drew Casper the Friendly Ghost and Richie Rich for Harvey Comics. Then he went on, I believe he created Amethyst, Princess of Gem World, (laughs) 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 who's a big 90s favorite. There's like a bunch of people born in the 90s screaming right now. (laughs) Oh my God, oh my God. So, um... He worked for, uh, he drew for Creepy and Eerie, which horror fans will know and love. And um, then he went on to uh, do the graphic historical representation of the 9-11 Commission Report, which was a bestseller. He was commissioned by Anne Frank House to draw her um, biography. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so he's... He's amazing. He's still drawing. He's still working. And it was such a double-edged sword for me growing up because I had this like famous comic book father who all these friends of mine wanted to meet. And then I go to art school and, oh, your father, Ernie Cologne, we expect great things from you. And I was like, you can expect me to play hooky like every day forever because that's too big for me to live up to. And, you know, I tried and that's how I ended up being a writer, which he's also a really great writer. So, you know, I'm just like squashed like a bug under him and I love him so much. But yeah, that's my connection to the comic book world. It's like, dad. (laughs) Okay, back to the lightning round. Um, juicing and cleansing. I, I don't like this. I, I feel like juicing, you're taking all the vitamins out, um, which I don't get, and you're just leaving the sugar. And then cleansing, I don't know if there's anything inherently like wrong with the body. I feel like just eat decent real food. That's my opinion. 
And foods not disguised as other foods. That's what I'm over to. So, you know, like, eat the thing you want to eat. Just eat the thing. Eat the thing. Um, thing. And, I don't know, seems wasteful on one, yeah, like, juicing. I mean, just eat the Have you ever owned a juicer? It's, like, this much, like, food. I've not done either of these. And, actually, I think most of the people that do are kind of control freaks or self-punishing. But, again, these are big terms I just threw into the (laughs) hub. I'm, like, biasing, biasing the lightning round. But, I don't know. No, it hasn't done it for me. Um, I juice every day. <laughs> I was going to be like, damn it, damn it, Suzanne. But actually, I'm going to modify that and say it's my husband who juices every day and I reap the benefits because he just makes enough for nice. like for me to participate in the, it's, it's like drinking juice. We're not approaching it like the religion of juicing and cleansing. First we juice and then we cleanse and that makes us pure of spirit and mind and heart. No, it's nothing like that. It's basically... In the morning when I'm still bleary-eyed, I'm drinking this lovely concoction of like carrots and apples and beets and celery and a little bit of ginger. And I'm like, oh, that hint of ginger. And it feels really, it's, it's lovely. It's just not, something nice to drink that mm. I think um, I wouldn't probably get as many vegetables in my diet if I didn't. Yeah. But I don't like the mulch left over because that's where all the good that. stuff is. I was going to say, if you compost the pulp, you're halfway to, you know. If only there were composting where I lived, but I'd have <laughs> oh. to tote like 10 pounds of mulch at the end of the week across a state line, literally, (laughs) on the path train to get to composting. So I'm afraid the rats dance in the landfill (laughs) when they get to our garbage because they're like, there's nothing but beet mulch in here, hot diggity. (laughs) So, yeah, love it. Cleansing, no. I do not cleanse. I eat sugar. I'm happy about it. I don't care (laughs) for cleansing. People cleanse. They say, oh, I feel so good. I'm seeing stars and I'm really angry. And I'm like, good on you. (laughs) Not happening to me. Uh, Watching Bob Ross. Clearly. Clearly. Yeah, Bob. (laughs) That's all we got to say about him. Well, Um, I mean, it's just such a, it's just so obvious. You watch Bob Ross and you get happy and. Happy tree. happy, Happy little trees. That's it. Why would you not? do this this is almost shouldn't be on the list because it's so intuitive <laughs> taking a pilgrimage like a retreat oh. yes yeah, like a retreat to New like England. a drawing and meditation <laughs> retreat to Good. beautiful seaside newburyport massachusetts just as cool. an example that no right <laughs> <laughs> no yes of course you i think you learn something about yourself when you're not in your everyday environs and it can be eye-opening to see something. Have you gone on a retreat? I've not gone on a retreat, but there are a lot of artistic pilgrimages mm-hmm. that are sort of out there, you know, paths to walk to get to this. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, based in historic, like, I mean, the Romans and the Greeks, they built their stuff to make you have a pilgrimage, almost mm-hmm. like this, you know, light goes from dark to light, this, that, and the other. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think just getting a change of scenery tasting different food, meeting different people, being out of your comfort zone, doing mm-hmm. things a different way. It's so, it just feeds you. It just feeds you completely. Even if you have an unpleasant time, oddly enough. Really? Yeah. I've, I've gone on some retreats that have been a little uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Maybe uh, the accommodations were very rustic or the food didn't agree. I have a great story to tell. Yeah. It turns into a really funny story and it informs, everything informs and yeah. it still feeds your creativity. So, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. So the next one is going to church. And I have to confess, I've been, I grew up not religious at all, and I've been in a church maybe like three times. So I don't really have that experience of going to church. But I will say that 
one of the things that I love more than anything and one of the things that I think is like the most transcendent feeling I can feel is singing with a group of people. So whenever I'm in a group of people singing, I feel like I get a little taste of that experience. That is, I think, one of the most powerful things about church. I mean, joining voices in song and that can be incredible. I mean, I grew up going to church. For me, my parents weren't a lot of like we weren't uh, religious and uptight. It was uh-huh. just more like this is how we connect with God or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and it works. It. I mean, I don't go every Sunday, you know, but I, I when I go, I get something out of it. But again, it's because, you know, you put yourself in the position you are, you know, opening yourself and then you sort of take what comes. But it's also a community thing, which I dig. Yeah, you I find th- the right community. Mm-hmm. That's p- probably got to be really crucial. Yeah. I think there's all different types of church, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I was raised in a very spiritually open fam- family where I went to, you know, church with the older relatives. I went to Jewish summer camp mm-hmm. with some friends. <laughs> um, you know, I was, it was very open. So I also have a lot of friends who have really, really negative childhood experiences with mm. church. So they do other things. Like they'll go to um, yoga ceremonies mm. where like, you know, on the full moon, you know, sometimes uh, yoga studios will have like a special um, event, you know, where there's a puja or a, a holy ceremony. And, um, you know, Buddhists do a lot of things, you know, sitting in Buddhist meditation is really beautiful. There are mm-hmm. special events, but also that's something that you could do on an average Tuesday. And I think having some sort of spiritual experience out of your home, you know, going to a place yeah. where you can see, like, you know, in a, in a Buddhist environment, everything is very, like, spare and zen, and you can just see, like, a one flower, and it's mm-hmm. transformative. But in a church, you get to see all the stained glass, and it's gorgeous, you know. And in a synagogue, there's other things that are just absolutely beautiful and strange and, you know, or familiar. So absolutely just finding the one that works for you emotionally, mm-hmm. I think, is the most important thing, but I'm all for it. And creating ceremony in your own life, too, is important. So if maybe you don't feel comfortable in that church environment. Like you said, there's some kind of ceremony. I have, like, the singing bowls at my apartment, and they make me feel very relaxed. So anything that's like a little bit of ceremony, I think you can bring into your routine, um, just uplifts the idea of you as a human being, I think. Absolutely. All right. I I have nothing to say about past life regression. I mean, I want to (laughs) know, but I've never done it, though Courtney has. I Well, I've participated at least on the path. I've regressed twice, but that is to say, I'll say the thing that I got most out of it is Again, self-evaluation. It wasn't someone else telling me about myself. It was me having this experience and in my sort of unconscious leading it, right, because I was in control of this whole thing as it sort of articulated out through my mind, whether it was playful, right? Mm-hmm. That that was the big thing. Like, get to regression through play. Like, don't have judgments about what you're seeing and then go from there. So it was it was cool. I don't know. It's like in yoga, reincarnation is such a big topic. You know, it's it's a belief. It's part of the belief system. But I've never had a sense of a past life. I've never done past life regression. And I really feel like my own life is like enough for me to handle right now. <laughs> so the idea of past lives, I really can't. It seems like a lot of work is what I'm saying. My own life is work enough. Houseful. Yeah, yeah houseful. We'll just do a few more here. Um, all right. I'm not. Look. 
I don't necessarily believe in forest bathing, but Courtney's been making fun Three. of me for like two months. <laughs> forest washing. For yeah, you call it everything. <laughs> Woodlands washing. Um, yeah, so I brought this up in a in a art meeting at our at our work, and um, yeah, I just said that people do it. Um, this started as something in Japan several years ago. And it's really as simple as it sounds. It's the idea of going and being in nature um, and just sitting and experiencing it. And you are not naked unless you want to be. Um, <laughs> and you're not bathing unless you, you want to be. Well, you're kind of you're like bathing in the. But essence, it's not like the soap and water. No. Okay. I'm mean, just saying. Just like, I've never done for the it. People. It's, it's immersion. It. <laughs> it's immersion in the forest vibe. Yeah. Yeah. The forest is the bath water. Okay. I get it. Yeah. I mean. We live in New York City, so I don't know, like, really don't have a ton of opportunities, but I would do it. I would forest bathe. I think if that's what you're saying, I definitely would forest bathe. I mean, we that's what you we all do when we go hiking. It's just like bathing in the outdoors. It sounds great. It is great. It's absolutely vital. I mean, we've got a it's it's like as everywhere we live becomes increasingly more citified mm-hmm. you know it's like buildings get taller or you have to like look straight up to see the sky and all of that a tree is just building decor you know we really do have to get to places where there's still nature because the vibe is just incredibly different you know I'm not knocking cities I was born in a city I love it but the vibe in nature is just like you can really get to shed a lot of stuff that you carry around with you and you just feel purified in some way to be very wavy gravy hippie chick about it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Summing it up after that close with self bathing, self bathing, forest yeah, bathing. Self bathing. Um self care is, you know, basically I think the biggest thing is doing what feels good for you versus doing what someone else told you you should do to quote unquote maybe feel good, but really just doing something. So everyone's brand of self-care is going to be different and that's okay. I mean, this isn't medicine and it's supposed to, as Suzanne has said repeatedly to us, supposed to feel good, (laughs) supposed to feel and, you know, something vital, bringing something vital back into your, your life and your, your day to day. So for an artist self-care kit, we would say, you know, do the good things, get the sleep, be active, set your goals, treat yourself, be kind to yourself. And, you know, in terms of the art stuff, which is where I always like to leave it, connect with a community, a fellow artist, um, someone who might need or want art art in their life, um, and then work on what makes you happy in the studio, out in nature, spend, you know, an hour in a museum looking at the beauty that other people have made because that's a, you know, a really generous connection with the things we've done in the past. And, um, you know, find inspiration where you can. No judgment there. You know, that's what we want so that you can be creative today and tomorrow and always. <laughs> I think that about wraps it up. We want to say another thank you to our guest, Suzanne Cologne, today. Oh God, for so many. So many yes. thank you. Thank you. For sharing her wisdom with us. <laughs> Art Openings is brought to you by Artist Network and is recorded at Banana Peel Studios in Brooklyn, New York. This podcast is produced by Courtney Jordan and Samantha Sanders with audio production by Chris Weingarten. Thanks for listening and be sure to rate us on iTunes.